Enter the Smiths. All right, let's, let's try this again. Take me out tonight Where there's music and there's people in the young and the line Driving in your car I never, never want to go home Because I haven't got one anymore Take me out tonight Because I want to see people and I want to see light Driving in your car Oh, please don't drop me home Because it's not my home, it's their home and I'm welcome no more If a double-decker bus crashes into us To die by your side is such a heavenly way to die And if a ten-ton truck kills the both of us To die by your side, well, the pleasure, the privilege is mine Gentlemen, welcome to the Abandoned Theater Podcast. We are all writers for speakers and screens. You can find us at speakerscreens.tumblr.com for all our wonderful essays. But today is a special day. We're giving you an extra podcast this month. And that's only one of the surprises we have for you. Because Robbie and I are introducing someone to the world. Yes, we are bringing you into, into life. We're bringing you to life. No, you're not. <laughs> we're like, we're like Evanescence with that Evanescence song. We're bringing you oh, to God. life. Oh God! I want to walk out of the room right now. <laughs> All right. Oh, Bye, Nick. Okay. Bye. Well, but I'm back. Nick, go ahead and introduce yourself. Um. <laughs> I'm I'm Nick. Um, I'm from Australia. Um, as you can tell by my horrendously offensive accent. Um, and I used to uh, podcast with these guys before. Um, it was the speakers and screens. It was just the your opinion is personal opinion is wrong. Um, yeah. But this is my first on on the uh, speakers and screens podcast. Actually, I think. Yeah, and sp- first specifically for abandoned theater because. Uh, yeah, 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 abandoned yeah. theater. Yeah. We're we're kind of a subsect of the Speaker Screens podcast, but the funny thing <laughs> is, the Speaker Screens podcast releases roughly one podcast every eh, three to five Here. months. Yeah. yeah, yeah, if that. Yeah, if that. So, yeah, yeah I think I, th- I I think we we should just be the Speakers and Screens podcast. Probably. Pretty much, because we're the only ones that commit. Exactly. Monthly. And you know what? We're going to bring you guys another episode in a week or two. So yeah. And I probably are that committed because this I feel like I almost need to apologize to the listeners because we recorded the episode that just went up about three weeks before it went up. So we're talking as if it's the beginning. We're talking as if uh, from the standpoint of the first week of January, 
or not January, September, but it didn't get released until the last week of September. This stuff just happens. <laughs> shit gets in the way. Yeah. Um, it's really when I'm lazy that this this stuff happens. So it's mostly it's my all fault. Robbie's fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Next time, either you guys sit right. down and sit down and learn how to edit a podcast, then then talk to me. <laughs> oh yeah, I know, I know. Well, that just means you're gonna have to go through a Scorsese protagonist esque penance for what you've done wrong, which. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the worst segue in the Ugh. history of segues. That was your segue. <laughs> I guess it was. You didn't even need to tell so us. So what we're you... doing? Uh... What we're doing today is Robbie and I had this idea last spring, and it took me forever to watch about 280s movies for me to feel comfortable to talk about this. Uh, <laughs> I saw Brazil on the big screen. I'm even and less. Robbie had I'm, even, great I'm even less comfortable with with talking about this. Because I'm even less qualified. <laughs> Robbie said, hey, we should do an... I think it was Robbie's idea. We should do an 80s podcast. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. And you could talk about Brazil and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Well, like six months later, here we are. And mm. it takes us a long time sometimes. But eventually, we do make good on our promises. We are going to give you our top 10 80s movies. Each of us have a list that we've made... That's very personal to our taste. I mean, if you if you have a different opinion, you're just wrong uh, to bring up previous yeah. podcast names. Yeah. But, um, but so you should take this like scripture. I mean, we know more than everyone else, so um, I hope yeah. you all convert to our ways. And let's just get started. I mean, I have nothing really to add other than my terrible hosting abilities. Are you guys ready? ready then? What? Yeah. Are you ready, Nick? <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> that was a weird. All right. That was a weird segue. It was a weird segue. Most of this will be edited out, be... so don't. Worry. <laughs> <laughs> it's all going to be pared down to "Welcome to the '80s Podcast." Now, my first pick is yeah. Yeah, because all of this is golden. Oh my. <laughs> Yeah, I love that banter. Nick, you should do this what? entire podcast in your Johnny Carson act. Your Johnny Carson impression. All right, let's go. Okay. TJ, you still there? <laughs> He's still yeah. there. Okay, great. All right, great. Technical problems, technical problems, technical problems. That's what we get for recording on Skype, but that's what we get for all living in separate countries. Well, except for me and TJ, but... You know. I'm the bad guy. I'm just gonna blame Missouri. They <laughs> <laughs> uh, can blame Australia. I'll blame Missouri, but everyone is like, "Well, Southern California." By the right. by the way, how how was um how was Gone Girl um how close was Gone Girl to actual Mississippi Missourian life? Um, pretty close. <laughs> pretty close. We'll we'll get into that in our next episode. I was not offended. In the least, in this depiction of Missouri. <laughs> are, there, are there people that are? Uh, not that I've seen, because yeah. uh, Gillian Flynn is from Missouri, so she right. she has well, a little bit of a right to her opinion. Yeah, well, um, I, I remember, I remember, like when Nebraska came out last year, there was there were some people saying, "Oh, it looks down on on Middle Americans," when really it doesn't. It looks it looks at Middle Americans in a 
but in a complex number of ways. Some of them negative, but some it, of them positive too. You know, made by a native Nebraskan. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, but anyways, let, let, let's get back onto your thing. All this is going to be gone. So. <laughs> All right, so our 80s podcast, we are excited to bring you these lists because the 80s is, is a much maligned, but really, uh, it's a decade full of treasures, and we're going to get to some of our picks right about now. Okay, so my number 10 is a bit of a cheat, so feel free to call bullshit immediately. But I have a three-way tie. Oh, fuck That is you. a thematic... <laughs> no, okay. I'm going gonna... <laughs> to take the amount of time it would take for one movie on three. Because... Oh yeah, we'll, a... oh, yeah. We'll see. We'll see, buddy. <laughs> Knowing you, this will be 20 fucking minutes. We're only on the second movie. <laughs> it's going to be a 20-minute... It's going to be a 20-page essay. <laughs> um, oh, God. We... Okay, so the three movies are Michael Mann's 1981 film Thief, uh, Paul Schrader's uh, 1985 film Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, and Terrence Davies' 1988 film Distant Voices Still Lives. The reason I picked these three, and I mean, I could have just picked Thief and been good with it, because that probably is my number 10, but I picked all three of these as a joint selection because they all sort of represent the idea of mise-en-scene, the idea that the, what's on the screen and how everything is in the frame is incredibly important to the structure of the story. All three of these directors are very much craftsmen. With Thief, you have Chicago filmed in a way that makes it neon. It makes it bright. It makes it just pop, especially on the new Criterion Blu-ray. Um, and uh, it, it creates a perfect uh, place for Jimmy Kahn's protagonist to sort of have his existential crisis as a as a bank thief and to want to leave the game. And you know, it's one of those stories, but. Just the way it's captured by Michael Mann's eye is is beautiful. Like, the opening shot is of an alley with all of the fire escapes and rain just cascading to this Tangerine Dream synthesizer. And it's just like, holy shit, I'm in for a treat. And the movie doesn't let up. Um, Mishima is Paul Schrader's, uh, um, Paul Schrader's biopic that depicts writer Mishima, who is a gay Japanese writer who is also a hardcore fascist. And tradition traditionalist. Those are who, two things uh, that don't go together. Huh. Yeah, no. Um, but it, it, he was he was he was a famous author who once uh, became a who became a terrorist and eventually c- committed seppuku at the end of his life. Mm. But what it does is it tells four of his stories. So it, it it depicts his life realistically, like realistic filmmaking. But it depicts four of his stories and how they mirror his life in a sort of stagey. A uh, very extravagant but obviously fake way, but again, it's the craft that creates it. And then, Distant Voices Still Lives is two small stories uh, by Terrence Davies, kind of that are autobiographical. That are pretty much is a photo album to a bunch of music. The late '40s is depicted in such a beautiful, lush way. This is a comparison that probably get me in some trouble, but I saw a lot of Tarkovsky's The Mirror in it, and the way oh. that the camera creeps, and the way that the camera captures these people. And the way that the camera captures them singing, they're constantly singing, and that's the way it tells its story. It's very sad family drama that's no plot, all poetry. And I find all three of these movies just incredible in how they put things in the frame, how they move the camera, and how they depict the actors. Like it's they're very much auteuristic works, and that's why I put them as my joint number ten. Wow, that um, the, those last two sound particularly interesting to me, especially with the Tarkovsky uh, <laughs> thing and. 
you know, I'm always really into historical Japanese films or that was Chinese, wasn't it? Oh yeah. I'm Mm-hmm. No, right. no, yeah. it, it is totally Japanese. Oh, it's yeah. Jap- Japanese. All right. Japanese. So yeah, I'll, I'll definitely definitely check those check those both out. Um, Nick, why don't you go next? <clears throat> All right. Um, there's a very specific reason that um I've been asked on this podcast, and mm-hmm. uh, we we won't get into that too much too much later. But um, my actual top number ten is David Lynch's Blue Velvet. <clears throat> ah. Very good, very good pick, and I'm certain it'll come up later. I, I left. Uh, it will. Yeah, I left. Um, I left all the '80s Lynch out of my list because I need to. He's a filmmaker that I need to rewatch uh, a lot of his, a lot of his work, uh, especially Blue Velvet and The Elephant Man. Well, I need to see Blue Velvet again as well. That's why it's number ten. Um, yeah, of course. And the only other '80s work of his that I've seen is. Dune, and that is... I'm sorry. I mean, not, not good. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't even say not good. It's just very... Bland. It's, it's kind of... It's, it's campy. It's very campy for David Lynch. Like, really? Love, like, that Lynch loves camp, but that kind... It, 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 it's kind of like... Almost like... It's, I mean, it's, like, like, it's I, like Hollywood miscalculation camp, you know? Um, maybe. Maybe. No, I mean, it's, it's still enjoyable Lynch, but... um. It's not enjoyable on, on on the same level of his other stuff like like Blue Velvet. Um, yeah, it's not it's I, not I mean, something you could take seriously, really. Not really, no. Um, but from what from what I remember, I, I saw Blue Velvet over a year ago. Um, but it's got all the it's got all the usual Lynch stuff that we love from Lynch. But um, it's really interesting because it it's almost the most conventional story he's told. Like outside, I I haven't seen the straight story. But um, it's total. But that's, that's totally the most conventional. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, obviously, but Blue obviously. Velvet is like you know, compared to Mulholland Driver, Good Lord, Eraserhead. That uh, it's fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like there, and that there, you get people characters. or characters and characters yeah, yeah. that remain the same person throughout the film, unlike, exactly. unlike Mulholland Drive. Hey, spoiler. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> they're not going to get. Yeah, not um, get that. <laughs> Unless I actually watch it, yeah. But oh, yeah. Um, you you essentially stole what I was about to say. Um, it's it's just, and that that that's why it's kind of interesting because it's 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 kind of got that dreamlike quality, but it's tipping into the norm, which I find really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's, and, a, it's like a it's like a really surreal take on just a normal narrative. Yeah, and and almost like a, it it, it kind of foreshadows um. Twin Peaks a bit because yeah yeah it's, definitely it's 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 that seedy underside of uh, small towns and, yeah small town small town and, and just um stuff like that yeah yeah and Kyle McLaughlin's character you know Dale Cooper and all <laughs> yeah Kyle yeah yeah and I, I I just remember this and how um Carl um Kyle McLaughlin's character I don't remember his name Blue Velvet Dewey he finds an ear yeah I don't know if you remember that one he finds <laughs> an ear like bugs in it it's like whoa yeah. crazy. <laughs> Wow, but that's I'll, 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 my original pick for number ten was actually going to be the Twin Peaks pilot, and I re- researched and um, realized that it was just the sketch. It's um, like April nineteen ninety. I was like, oh, but mm, yeah, close but no cigar. Yeah, close but no cigar. Thank God. <laughs> but yeah, I'm done for number ten. All right, um, it, it'll come back up. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, mostly. Um, 
Okay, I'm I'm weird. I didn't make an order. Um so I'm just gonna do it in alphabetical order, I guess. Um so that would make that would make my first film Aliens, which, you know, James Cameron sequel to Alien, not, you know, great masterpiece. Well, I I do think this film is a masterpiece in an action sense, but it's not the Oh yeah. It's not the revelation that the first film was exactly. Um, and I still, I do prefer it, but aliens, I mean, uh, sans empire strikes back. I can't think of a better sequel, uh, in my mind right now. The, so. the thing about aliens that I love is that he can conjure like, like James Cameron's not my favorite filmmaker, but I, I respect the hell out of the way he can, he can film action because, when you're confused, you're supposed to be confused. And when you, and, but most of the time, you know exactly what's going on. And I, I can't think of a scene in an 80s action movie as iconic as Newt in the water uh, uh, and then the alien rising up above the water from behind her. And it, and it still looks real. It doesn't look like a puppet. It still scares the shit out of me. And it's such a good... It's pretty much a scene of a child's nightmare, and which goes to the H.R. Giger imagery. That I just think so... That Cameron and Scott do such a good job of depicting in both the first two Alien movies. Yeah, man, you you do a much better, uh, much better uh, sort of analysis of it than I can. Um, okay, I'm I'm sorry, guys, if uh, audience out there, if you heard a little glitch or whatever or an edit, um, we had to stop recording and start over again because our quality was low. Uh, probably TJ's fault. Probably. I'm just kidding. Um, Missouri. <laughs> yeah. Well, where were we? TJ, what's your number okay. two? Okay. So my number nine ranked film. Number nine, I meant. Is, okay. Is a is a film directed by uh, Jonathan Demme and featuring music by David Byrne. And no, it's not. Stop making sense, so that would be a great pick. I am picking his romantic comedy, Something Wild, starring Melanie Griffith, uh, Jeff Daniels, and Ray Liotta in his first performance. This movie, I uh, wrote an essay about it. You can check, you can check it on, on the Tumblr site. But pretty much, in short, why I love this movie so much is that it's a romantic comedy that constantly reinvents itself from a road movie. Then it becomes a sort of 50 screwball comedy. Wow. Then it becomes a thrill. Then it becomes a thriller when Ray Liotta is introduced, and the way that Demi depicts that is this, is this huge patriotic bicentennial um, uh, ten-year reunion because that's uh, whenever Melanie Griffith's character graduated high school, and it's ten years after that. And two, it goes all dark into the slow dance, and Ray Liotta walks into the scene, and the movie is completely again redefined itself. And it does it a few more times before the end of the film. It's just, it's one of the most adventurous romantic comedies. It's not an experimental movie by any means, but there's certainly a lot of great filmmaking and acting going on. Jeff Daniels is just a delight. Uh, one of the most charming performances of the 80s, in my opinion. And I can't recommend something wild enough if you can check it out. Wow, it sounds like an 80s version of Love Exposure. <laughs> I haven't seen Love Exposure. But... Four-hour Japanese film about... Obscured panty oh, photography about obscured panty photography and cults. And, it is uh, not that explicit, but there is some. <laughs> I just mean with a constant like genre switching and 
um, constantly redefining itself and shit like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, but yeah. anyways, yeah. anyways, that is what love exposure scares me. I don't want to look at it. Four hours? Jeez, come on. It's not Sans Sono, really. <laughs> there's like it's it's surprisingly accessible. Like there's no there's not much violence in the movie actually. Surprisingly, um, there's I'm like still scared. Yeah, d- d- don't be scared. Just sit down okay. and do it. Okay. I'll send you the DVD. I have it. Why don't I my DVD player? Are you done with your pick? There? Number nine? TJ? That, yeah, I'm done, so it's all, it's all yours, Nick. Yeah. Um, number nine. Look, okay. I, 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 I don't know how, how many listeners do you, you guys have, and um, if, you will, if, will, if they are, you know, film fanatics as much as you are, but... Um, I had actually quite a hard time putting together this top 10 list, and if you asked me to put together like yeah. a top 15, top 20, I probably wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, so a lot of Same my, here, actually. A lot of my picks are very safe and very... Um, oh, it's that one. Um, but number nine, I had to do a Miyazaki. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of his. Um, number nine, My Neighbor, my neighbor Totoro. Oh, very nice. good. Very good pick. Um, and what I love about... Um, Miyazaki, and I mean, like, you guys aren't huge fans, I don't know if you're huge fans, or... Yeah, we are. Um, no, 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 I'm talking about the, talking about the movie, uh, his movie, Ponyo, which I think has a lot of similarity oh. to, um, Totoro. Yeah. I, I, I like it a lot for the same reasons that I love Totoro, and I love, uh, like, Kiki's Delivery Service, you know, it's a great, it's a great story for, you know, children, and also for adults, but, you know, it's definitely geared more for children than... Say Grave of the Fireflies. <laughs> oh God, definitely. Yeah, I, will, uh, I have to rewatch Ponyo, but yeah. uh, it's not my favorite. I would say, but I, it's not my I favorite think, either. But you know, I still, I, st- I still, it's I can easily watch it. It's mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's still a Miyazaki film. You know, mm-hmm. even lesser Miyazaki is sometimes better than a lot of filmmakers on their on their good day. Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, with a lot of Miyazaki, they're very watchable. They're very, um, they're very enjoyable. It's just nice to put on and sit and watch. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Just and, and just yeah. kind of get lost in the world that he creates with his um characters and um the in in this in the slight surrealism. How the surrealism kind of dips into the the mundane as well. Um, yeah. Because the, the, his his movies are often kind of like just things happening and then something a little weird is going on and it's like but the characters are kind of cool with it yeah <laughs> yeah you, you get, they, they're just kind of oh look there's, there's there's a toad right there oh look there's a cat bus they're cool with it <laughs> because, like it, I'm because gonna... it's, it's like the it's like the, the the mind of a child and it's all about their imagination and this mm-hmm. yeah childhood innocence how it's it's all full of wonder like if it was that that's that's why um movies like um My Neighbor Totoro and Ponyo, for example, and probably Kiki's Delivery Service, they they wouldn't really work if they were adult characters because they're not like if an an adult would be like, what the hell is this? Get yeah. this away from me! Where's my job? Where's my nine to five? Where's my <laughs> life? Where's yeah. my crippling debt? But with a, a kid's like, beautiful. sure, yeah, exactly. Like, a, a kid's just like, sure, I'll go, I'll go with it. It's this looks like this fuzzy little thing. I like it. It's cool, yeah. um, and I, 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 I love it. Um, it's I probably one of my. 
one of my favorite uh, Miyazaki's for sure. Totally. My neighbor Totoro. Yeah. It's my next, yeah. Um, my my next pick, which I guess would be my number nine, but you know, not really in order. Yeah. Uh, the Evil Dead, my favorite horror film of all time. So it would be closer to the top. Um, it's it has maybe not everything I love. Everything I love in horror, because you know, it, uh, the, there are genres outside of this that Evil Dead doesn't cover. But you know. For a large part, this is kind of my favorite type of horror. That extremely scary. I still, I still think the Evil Dead is scary. I know most people don't. Uh, most people just laugh at it, but I, I still find it pretty scary. Um, uh, the the tree root scene is one of the yeah exactly scenes I've ever yeah. seen. Yeah, and then just out. that that kind of grindhouse B movie feel to it. It it jump started a lot of stuff like that with the whole cabin in the woods type of. Uh, you know that's that storyline, which is essentially what Evil Dead is. Um, and do you ever come across a film that's only doing one thing, but the one thing it's doing is so perfect? Yeah. Like you don't want it to go off on any tan any tangents. Yeah. Like that's what like the that's what the Evil Dead is to me. It's you could argue that it has no thematic depth, and that's a perfectly fine argument. And you don't have to you don't have to be a genre fan. You don't have to like this movie, but like, for someone like me who is a genre movie genre movie fan, like this is like the diamond of this genre to me. Craft counts. I mean, like, just look at the influence that this movie had on uh, Sanfield's cinematography of *Raising Arizona*. And, oh yeah. And uh, and *Blood Simple* and Joel Cohen helped was one of the assistant editors on. Evil Dead, so it makes perfect sense that Raimi would influence. Here, I have a question for you. Sure. So, what makes the the Evil Dead better than Evil Dead Two? Um, I I love all three of the movies. Um, in, in I haven't the seen the third one, but I saw the first two. The third like, one is the like goofy. The third one is the goofiest. It's even goofier than um than Evil Dead Two. Um, I love Evil Dead Two, but there's no way I can love it in the same way as I love Evil Dead. Because the Evil Dead is actually is is an actual horror film. Yeah. And I can't. I have a hard time counting the Evil Dead Two, or just Evil Dead Two, as that same part of horror cinema as the as the Evil Dead. Um, I, I I don't want to feel like I'm being exclusionary. That's not a word. Um, I I, I don't want to be a snob about it, mm-hmm. but I just don't feel like I want to count it as much of a legitimate horror film as the evil dead and not that evil dead 2 isn't legitimate what sam raimi is trying to do is just completely different than oh, yeah. the first evil dead he's trying to he's took took it in a completely different direction so it's almost not even a horror film it's sort of a meta horror film in a way Mm-hmm. oh yeah i think it's smart i think it's a really good thing yeah awesome all right all right are we ready to move on or you still have something to add no, no, let, uh, okay. we can move on. All right. Well, my number eight is directed by a, a director that Robbie can do, uh, give an impersonation of much better than I can. Robbie, will you please give us your best Werner Herzog? Werner Herzog impersonation. Um, <laughs> I fucked up the last part. <laughs> oh, it was good. <laughs> okay, so Fitzcarraldo is his second masterpiece after a career of great... Um, 
maybe at times problematic, but just interesting 70s films, and Aguirre, Wrath of God, being the probably the epitome of his whole career. But when we get to a top 10 of a decade, I think it's okay to start calling most of your picks a masterpiece, because it depends on how unlimited you view that term, or, or, or how exclusionary, I should say. But Fifth Corraldo certainly counts, and it's a movie where a lot of people think that the making of documentary Burden of Dreams is actually, if not as good, better. And it is very good. Um, because it sort of represents uh, Klaus Kinski trying to get a boat over land so he can get to another river, so he can get uh, the resources better, so he can open up his own opera in his in this small town. And I believe it's Peru, but it's been a few months since I first watched this girl, though. This movie is cinematography. The movie is just mania. And the movie is surprisingly not dark ending. Are all really spoke to me. It like between this and Aguirre, I've never seen two movies just about the impossibility uh, and the, and just the fragility of man's existence. Like we try so hard to be great, but we are nothing. And wow. Yeah, and, and I just that sounds like a theme. That sounds like a thematic idea that would super suit me if it was done in a super hopeless way. You know, um, Aguirre. Uh, like Fitzcarraldo has a bittersweet ending. Aguirre is the one that has the completely manic ending. But that's a, that's a 70s movie, so it wouldn't qualify. I recommend yeah. Aguirre to you to yeah. watch first. But Fitzcarraldo is almost as good. Yeah, um, I've uh, I'm, and even uh, more batshit. Herzog is a Herzog is a huge blind spot on me. I I've only seen um, Into the Abyss, which is one of his documentaries. Would you? I, I have not watched any of his documentaries except for most of Grizzly Man, which I enjoyed. Would you say Into the Abyss is good? Oh yeah, it's very good. It's 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 harrowing. It's a harrowing yeah. film. And it's it hardens you and it makes you like it. It makes you hate the death penalty, basically. Oh wow! Yeah, the his, his but it's not. Work... But it's not a social issue documentary. I, I want. I oh, want him, oh. It's not. Don't boil it down to that. But that his views on the death penalty are certainly a strong thematic point. Oh yeah, I mean, like the way the way he depicts like his version of Nosferatu is so chilling. His, I gotta uh, see that. His um his hearts of glass. He hypnotized the entire crew. So they all act like a bunch of crazy people, and it's just wow. the, the experiments he was willing to go in the seventies and early eighties are just are. If the movie's not great, it's rewarding. Um, ah, every single one. Um, I would say that I saw uh, between Fitzcarraldo and Aguirre are great. I I, I just bought the the Herzog Blu-ray set. I can't wait to get to rewatch and watch some ones I haven't seen yet. So I'm just awesome. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Herzog fan, so yeah, I, I gotta watch more of him. Yeah, go, Nick. You're right. Number eight. My number eight. Um, my number eight for Werner Herzog. <laughs> Death, decay, and murder. What? Um, I. I I, I, I was trying to do when Werner hits like oh I can't God. do it Blood. look at me I'm Robbie I'm judgy I'm, I'm, I'm gonna point a finger at now we're finally getting to the reason why I was asked to be on this podcast um, there's a there's a certain filmmaker who attracted who, who over the years has attracted certain controversy but and has and started out as one type of filmmaker and then slowly progressed into another. 
but I'm a big fan of a lot of his work and even the stuff that people are like, no, that's shit. I'm like, hey, I, I like it. I don't know why. It just resonates with me on, on a level that I really enjoy. I find a lot of his movies extremely rewarding and this is Woody Allen. I'm a big fan of Woody Allen and the 80s is probably his best decade, his strongest decade. Um, and number eight is the often controversial Stardust Memories. Um, I'm a big fan of um, just the way that it incorporates... It, it, it's kind of like a continuation of Love and Death from 1975, where it's got oh, these very philosophical, very big ideas, but it's very grounded in a lot of great comedy, great physical comedy, great um, great wordplay from Woody, as, as always. If, if Woody's in a movie... He's, he's going to be funny in it, except for Husbands and Wives, which is downright depressing, um, but also one of my favorites. Also nice. one of my favorites. Um, but Stardust Memories, it's also very surreal in a way because it's, it's very much taking off of um, uh, Fellini's six, Eight and a Half um, and kind of the, the way a filmmaker is... Is, is making is making a movie and looking back on his life at the same time and has kind of become disgruntled with the whole filmmaking idea and wants to do wants, wants, wants something more out of life and but like in, instead of um, how eight and a half is like life as a whole circus and all that um, Woody's like I don't want to make funny movies anymore he wants to do something he wants to do something bigger but everyone's just like we love your movies, especially the early funny ones. <laughs> and he's just like, I don't want to make funny. Mo- I I don't want to make funny movies anymore. It's 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 just, it's degrading. Like how can how can I be funny when there's death and suffering all over the world? <laughs> I mean, that's so great. Your American accents um, are better than my Australian. That's for sure. It's it's because it's because of Americans have plastered our TV and cinema Can for. I <laughs> you that's a Scottish. Donkey. No, that that reminds me of um the, a, a Scottish person I met who tried to do a, an Australian accent and it wound up being sounding like Cockney English. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hello, mate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it just sounds like, let's go down to the pub and put, 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 put a pint on the... Something. If I have to bury another Batman. <laughs> My name is Michael Caine. Why would you be burying more than one Batman? There was like seven oh. Batmans. I'm Michael Caine. Exactly. 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 Kane. I, enough, think we enough, have to okay, say, I, I think we have to say about Stardust Memories that rest in peace, Gordon Willis. Oh, def- oh definitely, definitely, his, definitely. His, he was, I mean, his, yeah. his Woody work is, is the best, even though he worked with my favorite cinematographer, Stan Mifkis. Woody got the yeah. most uh, rewarding cinematography with, 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 through Annie Hall, Manhattan, Stardust Memories, through his work with Gordon Willis. Even though, yeah, um, yeah uh, I mean, like... Even even though if 
if if if I could, I'd probably put Manhattan on here, but it's the the year a year off. Yeah, um, yeah. But Manhattan is probably Woody's most cinematic movie and his most oh, definitely. beautiful looking movie, <laughs> yeah. especially that entire first sequence. How it's just uh, exactly. shots of Manhattan with. Um, that that beautiful score, I, like it's 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 a famous composer, and I should know it because Gershwin? Uh, how much Gershwin? yeah, Gershwin. That's it, that's it. But like, absolutely beautiful. Just it, it's like it, it goes for like about five ten minutes, and it's just um, scenes with that music, and you hear the the. It's, I'm pretty sure it's almost like the full piece, or like a, a long extended part of this piece, yeah. over just. Shots of Manhattan is absolutely beautiful, but um, Stardust Memories really oh, yeah. good, really enjoy it, um, yeah. love it. All right, and uh, there will be another Woody Allen later in the list, just so you know. <laughs> well, yeah. Awesome. Um, my next pick is Grave of the Fireflies. Oh Spe- yeah. <laughs> yeah, which um, in alphabetical order, but this would be close to the top, uh, certainly. Um, devastating. Hope, actually hopeless. It's like the other side of the fantastical Miyazaki films and, you know, a couple of the other Isayo Takahata films that are also pretty fantastical and kid-friendly. It's like the other side of that. And uh, to see reality and how how war ruins lives, not just the people who are victims of battle, but just victims of an entire of an entirely unjust way of going about war, you know. Um, think of this. I think that this film was anti anything. It was anti firebombing, um, and you know, it showed that it was it wasn't a very sophisticated way of war, and it was a way of oh, yeah. breaking breaking down an entire nation. And you know, not that not that the Japanese did us any favors, but uh, mm. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's. It's it's another harrowing film and just really hard to watch, but ultimately worth it, obviously. Well, it, it'll it'll come up again. It'll it'll come up again. Yeah, certainly. So let's move All on. Right. Yes. So so my number seven is the only best picture winner to appear on my list, but it is easily the best best picture winner of the eighties. I think is, I have none. Um, I mean, the 80s are not as bad as the night is a lot of 90s picks in terms of best picture winners. You know, we yeah. did get Silence of the Lambs, and we did get Unforgiven in the 90s. So there are and Schindler's List. So there are good picks in my opinion. But the 80s overall had merely a bunch of decent picks and a bunch of terrible picks. But I'm picking one that was a great pick. It was the best movie of that year. So in my opinion, the year they got it right is Milos Forman's Amadeus. I think. Ah. I think this movie is a biopic done right because it is about jealousy and it is about just just not being good at something but having to experience an infantile idiot who's great at it. And we feel um, F. Murray Abraham's jealousy to, Tom, to Thomas Holtz's um, uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Uh, as Salieri, he's one of the great characters in cinematic, at least Hollywood cinematic history in that we hate him and we love him at the same time as he's going after this little brat who just so happens to be a fucking, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A genius. Um, yeah. There's no kidding around that Mozart was a genius, but he also liked to, to throw parties. Uh, <laughs> okay. 
it is hilarious that I said farty because he likes ah. to throw par- parties in which he farts as a punchline to make fun of Salieri's music. Like, ah. th- this movie is funny. This movie is cinematic. The costuming is amazing. It is beautifully shot. And it's crazy that the director of, the, I mean, of the great movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest yeah. uh, g- gave us, I mean, his second best picture winner in something as epic and regal and hilarious and scatological even as as Amadeus. It is truly one of the great best picture winners. Awesome. All right. Uh, uh, Nick, your next pick. Me. Me, my next pick. These are coming around faster than I thought they would be. Um, my next pick, number seven, um, much in the similar vein of my neighbor, to, my neighbor Totoro, I, I can't speak, um, is another another film um, which blurs the line between um, child-friendly and adult-friendly. Um, and But more often than not, as... The more you look into it, it's one of those movies which, on the surface, seems like the kind which you could just put down in front of a, in front of a um, in front of a kid and be like, "Yeah, watch that while I go off and booze with your mother." <laughs> or yeah, but um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? It's definitely oh, I love this more, movie. It's definitely more of an adult movie. The more you watch it, it's definitely more for adults. Because uh-huh. and, and, and it's ta- because it's it's taking all of these old um like pe- people think it's for kids because it's taking all of these old uh, cartoon characters but the fact that it does take these old cartoon characters <coughs> is for like film buffs and, and movie nerds because a, a, a lot of these young kids are probably like who's like that like obviously they'll they'll see Mickey Mouse and they'll see Bugs Bunny and they'll see that like famous frame where um. Bob Hoskins is in Toontown okay. and um, he's, he's, he's falling in midair and um, yeah. um, like uh, Mickey's on one side and Bugs is on the other. Yeah. And, and then like, I think was it um, Bugs gives him an anvil and he falls down faster. He's like, hey, yeah. Hey, yeah. But um, <laughs> like yeah. a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the themes of like <coughs> oppression and, um, and just, and uh, like like a lot of like the darkness, there's a lot of darkness to it that um I think a, a lot of kids would be very frightened by. Like I'm pretty sure when I when, when I first saw it when I was a kid, like I, I saw this when I was a kid, and um this 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 kind of is on my list due to the nostalgia of it. Um, yeah, I was terrified of um of Doom, like Judge Doom, um, <laughs> played by sure Christopher was. Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd, and he does an absolutely menacing performance as it, and he's absolutely brilliant in that in that role. And I don't think you ever see him blink at all because he's a cut. Uh, no. oh, like, oh, I was about I was about to spoil the entire film. Um, but uh, it's it, it it look it's been around for almost, for twenty five years. Come on, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I I love this movie too. It's probably Robert Zemeckis' best film. And one, yeah. one of his one of his last really great films before, you know, the the unironic uh, uh, soap opera uh, family film Robert Zemeckis came along. Yeah, I, I'm, um, I'm intrigued by Contact. Wait, what? I'm intrigued by Contact. Con- I hear, I hear that's upper level of the metrics, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I, with, I haven't seen with, it. With Jodie Foster, yeah. I haven't seen it, but I'm intrigued. And I agree that this is his best movie. I mean, Back to the Future is fun for, for some 80s nostalgia. And it is a well-made, well-written movie. But I think I think this movie is just on another level. I think part of it has to do with that. It, it mixes that, that sort of cartoony nostalgia with film noir. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it like I love the way neo-noirs take historical L.A. moments of corruption, like the, the water issue with um, with Chinatown. And here is the public transportation. It's so fun. I, I don't know how public transportation is in L.A., but it's pretty infamous outside of L.A. Because it's like it's, it's bad. It, it's so funny whenever Bob Hoskins goes, you know, early in the movie, because I just watched it. He says something like, oh, yeah, L.A., the best public transit in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it, the whole movie is sort of about the end of it and the creation of the freeway and all that, because like, they're going to that's why they're going to destroy Toontown. Um, for them. Yeah. But I just love huh. that. And and again, Nick brings up a 2014 casualty in the great, amazing Bob, yeah, Hoskins, Bob Hoskins, who's also Bob great Hoskins, in Mona Lisa. Yeah. He's great in Mona Lisa in Brazil, two more other awesome 80s movies that feature. Um, yeah, he, yeah, I, I, really, I really love him in, in Brazil, and I love him in this, too. And, you know, Bob Hoskins is a great talent, you know. Mm-hmm. One, thing I want, one thing I do want to say before we move on from, um, from Roger Rabbit, I believe that um, for, for, for an 80s movie, which is almost like hugely looked at with disdain for like the the horrible cg like bringing in like cgi effects and stuff with computers and like <laughs> testing out that kind of stuff who framed roger rabbit still looks brilliant today oh yes. yeah oh, it yeah. looks great still it looks, looks great fantastic yeah I totally agree. yeah it was just as a technical marvel yeah it's, it's technically genius it won a bunch of oscars for it too and those were some yeah should have won best picture is probably better than whatever won that year I think it was Rain Man. <laughs> huh? Oh, Rain Man. I had to watch that for um, a class in high school. It's definitely, definitely an okay movie. But it's, definitely, it's probably definitely. fine, but I, I couldn't even take it seriously then because all I could think about was Justin Hoffman doing a, or doing a retardo voice. I mean... At best, it's okay. I mean, it's not... Yeah, but then the whole thing, it, it's all about making the rich brother happy and yeah. making him okay. It's like it's absolutely uh, problematic. It's like it, it's like the magical Negro equivalent of disabled people. <laughs> I'm definitely, definitely the magical Negro. Yeah, I'm staying away from this. <laughs> I'm getting not Look, getting involved. Look, my my use of the word Negro is not in yeah, the know, slur sense. Is in the magic magical Negro, which is a legit saying. It's gonna be cut. Gonna be cut. Gonna be cut. Gonna be cut. Google, Google it. Cut. No, 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 it's not gonna be cut. <laughs> Okay. I'm, leaving, I'm leaving this in. I'm the boss of this podcast, so fuck you. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Robbie, right. what's your number? Oh, um, L'Argent. Oh, the, nice. The final film uh, from uh, famed French exis- uh, d- philosophical uh, spiritual director Robert Bresson. Uh, this is his final film. I might have just said that. Um, and he he shared the best director prize with Andre Tarkovsky, surprisingly, mm-hmm. at uh, at at Cannes. Um, Larry Jean that's for, is that's for the sacrifice, right? Uh, that was for nostalgia. Oh, okay, okay. okay. Yeah, um, Larry is uh, it's it's very similar to uh, a film from 1959 he made called Pickpocket, which is arguably more infamous. But I actually think that Larry Jean, um, 
deals with a lot of similar themes, not the same things, themes, but similar themes um, in a more interesting and cinematic way for me. Um, uh, there's a lot of Dostoevsky in here. I think it's, is it ba- it's based off of a Tolstoy short story, right? Yeah. A Tolstoy one. Um, but then there's still a lot of Dostoevsky in there. And, oh, yeah. You know. Crime and Punishment. Out the yeah, and, and then that's all that stuff is definitely in in a, in a, a pickpocket, what I just talked about. But mm-hmm. L'Argent, it kind of ex- – it, it tells what on paper would be kind of an average crime story. Um, but when Brisson does it, he – I'd argue he makes a spiritual film out of it and – Sort of documents the 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 steps of moral decline and just cruelty that lead to the destruction of a soul. Um, Brisson, more than I think most directors, you know, um, and Tarkovsky was influenced by him a lot in for this for this reason. Um, Brisson was spiritual and looked into the human soul more than most directors even thought to. And, you know, that's why that's why he has such a reputation today, you know. He's a reputation for being very uh, economic and very um, hard, you know, a very diff- kind of a difficult filmmaker to watch, but he never did anything that wasn't his complete vision, and I have, I have to respect a filmmaker like that. Oh, yeah, Lars Hans great. Yeah. Uh, so, TJ, what's next? My number six is a repeat. I believe it's our first repeat. Um, it is uh, Takahata's Grave of the Fireflies. I yeah. love... I, I mean, Miyazaki is the more important, and I prefer Miyazaki in terms of career. But my favorite Studio Ghibli movie is Grave of the Fireflies. Uh, with Same Spirit here. Away, Same here. Second. It, it, it just destroys me. And... I, it, it does lack a bit of the whimsy that, uh, of what I love about like My Neighbor Totoro, which is an amazing uh, movie. Whimsy would, not, whimsy would not be very appropriate for no. Grave of the Fireflies. There are moments, but those moments just make you care more about the characters. Like they remind you that these are kids, and, and they're not. I wouldn't say whimsy. I would say like ni- there are nice moments within. This isn't just sad, sad, sad. It's just. It's sadness laced with moments of humanity, and that makes it all the more tragic. It, I just, it's an empathy machine. I hear, yeah. I've heard, I mean, I've heard kids say in my life that, you know, well, it's just, yeah, well, we nuked Hiroshima, but that's just because, you know, they deserved it. It's what they get for attacking us. I, and I think about kids like this who didn't deserve. Didn't have a chance, really. Yeah, I mean, and this isn't about the nuclear bombings. It's about the fire bombings. But th- those yeah. ideas are so close because they both killed so many civilians. And I am glad the United States won World War II, obviously, but I can still empathize with the people who had nothing to do with it. I do love that the boy in this is so patriotic, and he does want to fight for his country. It makes him realistic. It doesn't make him some sort of, like, Yeah. I mean, I mean, these characters are kind of selfish in a way, like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. As all kids are. Yeah. And, you know, but... It, it makes them human. It does. It makes them flawed. It doesn't make them unsympathetic at all. Oh yeah, exactly. But you know, it, it it also doesn't make them these these perf, th- these perfect <laughs> martyrs. You know, there's not not any martyrdom happening here. You know. No the the, the thing about this movie, and this is probably the last thing I say, so we can 
keep going and it can go. But I love that it's and it, it, it starts with the end. So you already know where you're going. So at the end doesn't feel cheap. It's sort of like maybe a movie in which, spoiler alert, in which the, it tells you the beginning in which the kids die, two children die, would feel a little hokey. But when you start with it, it already sets up that expectation. It's a really nice narrative trick. I think Takahata does. And one of the reasons why this is one of the most emotional movie experiences that I have had. Yeah. All right, All right. Nick, number six. Number six. Um, we have got... I'm not going to be even. I'm not. I'm, I'm going to start just not prefacing these movies and saying this is a movie where la da 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 da, and then kind <laughs> of hint and then reveal the title. Um, number six, Videodrome. Ooh. David Cronenberg's wow. grungy body horror. Just yeah. absolutely weird, strange, out there, kind of surreal, and something that I mean like I've, I've been watching a lot of um well not a lot but I've, I've been slowly massing my amassing my uh, knowledge of David Cronenberg and yeah I've only seen a couple he, couple myself he seems to really like movies about ideas and doesn't really I don't know if he doesn't really care but he doesn't seem to be concerned if a movie doesn't follow like a conventional narrative no um, he, 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 he likes, he likes when, I mean, like, even, like, the, the, the fly is not about a man that turns into a fly. No. Videodrome is not about, uh, a, 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 a state, a, yeah, the, the living, the long, the, the new flesh. Well, no, actually, no, I, th- I think Videodrome is about the new flesh, but Videodrome okay. is not about a TV station that, okay. um, find a, a snuff porn um, channel and broadcast it. It's mm. not about... Um, yeah, I can't wait to see this movie. Uh, oh, it's it's so good. Yeah, I, It's I, really good. I haven't, um, I haven't gotten like, to a lot of Cronenberg yet. I mean, I, I, I'm probably the, the least eloquent about um, talking about movies out, out of all three of us, but nah, these... But I, I probably should have been... Um, should, should have written down some ideas. Nah. I, I have written some ideas, but um, the, the stuff to talk about. But um, I, I, I mean, like, I just love that. I, I love the idea of a character finding this kind of stuff and not and kind of becoming intoxicated by it and <laughs> slowly seeping into this world of depravity and. And until he himself does not know if this the, the the if if he is part of it or if he is just simply witnessing it, and it's like it's, it's it's really and as, as as like the film goes on, it turns more and more into the surreal. It it like this 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 the 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 line between dream and reality is blurred, and it's it, I I. I I'm going to say I enjoy it. I, I have a question for you. I, yes. So have you seen Dead Ringers? No, I haven't. Okay, I was just going to ask it. Uh, uh, because that's my favorite 80s Cronenberg, and it's pretty close. And I was just going to see if you could <coughs> convince me. Because, I mean, Videodrome is great, though. I mean, 
if you uh-huh. like that, I totally recommend you see Dead Ringers with dual Jeremy Iron performance. Jeremy Irons, yeah. As, as yeah, two um, gynecologist twins, it's just so, it's just so crazy. It just, it, it's very much in line with the great Cronenberg movies like Crash, like Videodrome. Oh, I could, I, I could probably talk a lot more about Crash if 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 that was that was a, if, if, if it was a nineties cast. Yeah, if it was nineties cast, but um, video uh, Cronenberg is one of those directors like he, he seems to be almost like the quintessential eighties director that I want to see. Um, mm-hmm. because and 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 thing is, Cronenberg, if you think about it, he kind of rose up with these um. With, with with these other body horror type um, filmmakers and horror movie filmmakers, it, it was kind of from the same camp in a way, like um, the Toby Hoopers and the uh, John Carpenters. But in but what set Cronenberg um, different is that his movies are about ideas and about almost like, philosophical. Um, in a, in a way, I'd I'd say so. And and um like. I'm totally stealing this from another critic. Um, Robbie, you know who I'm stealing from. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Why did I say Robbie? Because Tito obviously knows. Um, Mark Cromerod. But, yeah, but, like, he, a lot of his movies are about identity and, in a way, the loss of identity. And that's what Videodrome is as well. Because James... James Wood's character essentially loses himself within this video drone. Yeah, that's if, you, kinda, if, that, if you think about it. That's kind of that's kind of what the fly is about too, in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Which it's I almost consider, I almost considered bringing that on my list. Alright. Alright. But yeah, video drone. I liked it. <laughs> Onto you guy. Onto All the right. next guy. Um, next guy is me, right? I think mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, wow. I'm not kidding either. <laughs> this is my Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, for some reason, I got in, it was one of those movies that you get into when you're really young, and they're not. it's not a kind of movie that you get into when you're really young. Um, it's one of those weird ones that you found and you kind of obsess over. Um, and yes, my help of my love of off-Broadway musicals also, you know, makes makes picking this pick pretty easy and loving it. Um, and I just think it's funny. And I just think Frank Oz is great most of the time. I'm sure he's made a bad film, but I love a lot of his movies. Even the non-Muppet ones. Like yeah. like another one of my favorite comedies, my, one of my favorite comedies of the 90s is What About Bob? with uh, mm-hmm. Bill Murray and uh, Richard Dreyfuss. Um, I I haven't thought about that movie in a long time. It's a it is a good one. I need to rewatch it though because which one? I don't. Oh, the uh, your your little, official pick, Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, yeah, I gotta say, if you if you don't find the idea of uh, Steve Martin playing a dentist singing okay, a yeah, song, singing a song about being a dentist and using his laughing gas to get himself high while he tortures his uh, patients. Yeah. If you don't find that right. idea funny, then yeah, this might not be for you, but I find that idea so great every time. I forgot, and yeah, Bill, I forgot that scene. It's been and so speaking long. of which, Bill Murray makes one of his funniest cameos ever in this movie. 
had no idea he was in it. Wow. I, yeah. I think of all the movies you talked about so far, it's the one I remember the least from. <laughs> yeah. I, did, I, I have to give it a rewatch before I can. I, I can, think. I, can I think comment. so. I think it's probably better. I think it's better than, you know, a nostalgia has led on for it to be. You know, because good people don't think about this movie the way they the way that people think about Little Shop or not Little Shop, a Rocky Horror Picture Show. But this is my Rocky Horror Picture Show. Without the, you know, new rape and, you know, bondage and stuff like that. Hmm. All right, TJ, next. Okay, my number five is another Asian cinema pick, because I guess I like Asian cinema. Um, Akira Kurosawa had two great, I mean, just grade A late period films in the 80s. One was Kagemusha, and then the other one was my pick, Rand. Uh, Ran, which is an adaptation of King Lear, told as an epic samurai film, um, full of these lush colors that separate itself, separate it from the great black and white of his early samurai films, like Throne of Blood, his Macbeth adaptation, Seven Samurai, Seven Samurai, uh, Hidden Fortress, or Star Wars before Star Wars. Um, but the Ran is up there with those movies. That's his Kagamusha. For a different reason from Kagemusha. Kagemusha is this poetic, hard-to-follow, interesting movie about... Um, sort of, he's almost a Shakespearean film in ways, but it's just so poetic and hard to read at times. Ran is the exact opposite. It's a straight-up adaptation of King Lear, and as a straight-up adaptation of King Lear, it has all the great... Just the great... Um, oh, what am I looking for? I don't think that's... It has the great... Theatricality or... Yeah, it does have a great theatricality because it because it has the kabuki no theater very built into its DNA, just like Kagemusha did. And it's, it's sort of like a kabuki version, or I guess it would be no theater, a no theater version of Lear, which works so well. It's so surprising that it does. But, I mean, we don't get the beautiful Shakespearean language, but what we do get are beautiful Kurosawa and images that just strike us or strike the audience so powerfully, and, and Ran is a late career masterpiece from a, from one of the great masters. Awesome, yeah. I need. Uh, I, I've seen I've seen a few Kurosawa, but I'm not well versed quite yet. So I need to get I need to get to those uh, those late period works and 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 some of the non samurai films too. Oh yeah, I mean, throughout this podcast, we will have mentioned the the, the trinity of. 50s and 60s world cinema and uh, we've already <laughs> mentioned Fellini we've mentioned Kurosawa and we're going to get to the other biggie by at, by the end of this podcast yeah or um, a couple that I think belong in, in that oh, yeah, oh no absolutely no. There, there's a big three then there's a big three there are others that belong there absolutely yeah of course uh, Nick, Nicholas 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 you're back no. in your seats number five this is going to be another repeat. Oh, nice. Evil Dead. Ah. Uh, well, it's a good um, repeat. You picked correctly, sir. Yeah, sure. But, um, I pretty much agree with everything um, that Robbie said. Um, if you want to hear my thoughts, just go back a couple, about ten minutes or so, and listen to what he said. And I'm going to steal everything that he said. Just imagine it in my horrible dialect but what i was going to say what i want to add is that um 
Evil Dead kind of birthed all of these, like th- th- this whole because even though like we disre- uh, uh, the 80s is, dis- is disregarded as a bad time in movies, lots of great um, horror and horror f- horror movies and like slasher movies and stuff like that. Um, and oh, I have to keep going. I, I don't think I can talk about Needle Dead that long. Um, and I think TJ dropped out as well. Oh, I, I'm here. Oh, great. No, it's, it's, it, I, I don't know if you saw, but um, Robbie said that he has to go pee. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, um, cut, cut point. Um, yeah. But yeah, Evil, Evil Dead, uh, uh, great for like B-movies. Um, and even though it's kind of the king of B-movies in a way, it's it, it itself it's has a lot of tropes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it itself is kind of like, it's got a lot of tropes which uses, which, um, which it's, since it's since established and yeah. has been used by um, other B movies, but it's got a level of there's a level of creativity to it. Yeah, creativity, quirkiness, um, strange, off the wall type of, in a way, physical comedy. Um, yeah. And I mean, like I'm I'm saying this as as, as somebody who who's seen both um, the first two Evil Deads, and I. I'm not, I, I mean, like, I'm probably going to get a lot of hate for this, but I wasn't a fan of the second second one um, because I thought it was just a retreading of the first one, and but, you know, in, a, but in a different genre, pretty much. Yeah, in, in in a different in a different way, but it, in it, I I didn't enjoy the way that um, it was retold. Yeah, um, that's a that, that's a valid criticism. I don't. I think people maybe worship Evil Dead Two a little bit too much, um, but. If you don't like the Evil Dead, uh, or if you don't like Evil Dead Two, you probably wouldn't like Army of Darkness either. <laughs> oh no, no, no! Um, I, I, I watched um, Evil Dead and Evil Dead Two back to back, and after after Evil Dead Two, I was thinking like, I'm not gonna probably, I'm probably not gonna watch Evil Dead Three. That's not Army of Darkness. That's that's doesn't yeah. Doesn't it's the like. it's the campiest of all of them. It's not even trying to be a horror movie. It's um, it's not even in that construct anymore. You know. It's just full on wackiness, but I still love I still love it, but you know. Love it for very different reasons that I love the first Evil Dead. Yeah. But go go Ash. Go Ash. Go catch them all. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Gotta catch them all. Anyways. Um I'm next, I guess. Um yep. my next one is uh one that was mentioned earlier. Nostalgia. Um Ooh. from Andre Tarkovsky. Um that shared the best director Palm Door Prize with not Palm d'Or. Best Director Can Prize with uh, Lojean, one of my last picks. Is that who you were referencing earlier when you said someone who belongs in that conversation? Uh, yes. I, yes. I agree. I, I'm in agreement. Yeah. Um, and you, you you compared one of your films to uh, The Mirror earlier, which yeah. which is also just amazing. And um, I've I've only seen Nostalgia once, but once is not enough. <laughs> I need to <laughs> see it again. Uh, I've just been thinking about it a lot lately, and. It's just, it's it's as much of a, it's almost as much of a religious experience as 
some of his other great work like Stalker or um, which is the best, which is probably his best. That's another one where it's just like there's so much, and I once one watch one watch through is not enough, and you know you could people criticize these movies for being overly long, but I mean I'm I'm gonna get to the I'm gonna get to this a little bit more later, um, spoiler, but. Um, Tarkovsky is another director that just peers that just grabs your soul and just sucks the life out of you if, uh, throughout the film, and that sounds like a, a that sounds like a criticism, but you know when Roger Ebert reviewed uh, the Sacrifice on the Siskel and Ebert show, he said something very interesting that Tarkovsky is a director that. Um, wants to t- wants to stretch stretch you out until you're no longer the person that you were when you first started watching the film um so the film the film is doing the opposite of entertaining you it's trying to absorb you and there's a lot of filmmakers that try to go about that way a lot of classic filmmakers but Tarkovsky is just a master in my opinion and uh, there's still a couple that I haven't seen but uh I I got nothing this nothing more to say. I just I just really love him and love love this movie. I think the moment that really It's really emotional. Is, this is a really oh, yeah. emotional film. It's about nostalgia. It's about a Russian emigrate that um is going going to Italy to interview or not to interview but to research a, f- a famous composer and uh to explain more would be meaningless because none of it would make sense. But <laughs> This is a really just sad and poignant film. And I don't use that term very much, but about nostalgia. I think the two scenes that speak most to me from the film are one, the last scene, which is the famous scene, the famous shot. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, with and the, the, and, and the dog. Yeah, and the and the and the long long uh, candle take. Yes, and that was the other one I was talking about. Absolutely, it, that feels very much like praying the rosary or some sort of like. Like, it makes you contemplate what you're thinking as you watch this very monotonous scene, which I found very powerful. And, and as yeah, you said, yeah, and religious. That's, that's my – that's always my complaint when people complain about slow movies. Like, that's the mindset you have to be in. And Oh, that's true. You, you, and you will hopefully, if you use your brain enough or if you're watching a good movie, you know, get something really meaningful out of it. But, you know, people's – attention patiences and attention spans have kind of been destroyed and that's really sad well i will say as someone who thinks Tarkovsky is one of the greats i mean he's not for every mood oh well yeah of course <laughs> uh, uh, of course i'm just saying sometimes you just oh yeah you sometimes you want to watch the evil bit well yeah yeah of course but you know people need to be more open to art films in general i think okay because there's there's a there's a lot of moviegoers where the idea of watching a slow-moving film, they're immediately like, eh. And then, you know, if they actually... The, there are some film buffs I know, the people that describe themselves as, quote, film buffs, that wouldn't even think about watching 2001. That's too slow for them. So that's where I'm coming from, which, you know, oh, yeah. if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah. So... Awesome. I guess it's my turn, isn't it? Yeah. All right, well, my number four, I could have picked four movies for this spot, 
But I'll call this the honorary Martin Scorsese spot. Um, oh, I, mean, I, I have one of those too. Yeah, and we might have the same, same. one. I mean, I could have gone After Hours, which is such a it's his most unique film. I gotta see it. I gotta see uh, that well, one. It's, it's great. I mean, like, like, I forget the critic, but in the essay in the Criterion, something wild, it says that Blue Velvet, After Hours, and Something Wild are the yuppie nightmare trilogy. And even though I don't view <laughs> Kyle MacLachlan's particularly yuppie-like, I, I I get it. It makes perfect sense to me. And sort of when he's, yeah. when he's when he's in his suits and doing his wine tasting bullshit. That's kind of oh, well, that's, a that's good kind point. of yuppie. Yeah. Yeah, you like. Well, I mean, Heine- Heineken, fuck that shit. Okay, <laughs> wait. I, I, I can't spoil that because we're going to get there as well. Um, but I, I could have picked After Hours, but I didn't. I could have picked The King of Comedy, which is just as good. And yeah. one of my favorite Robert De Niro performances, but I didn't. I could have picked The Last Temptation of Christ. Masterpiece. Which is, well, yes, absolutely. But that is just outside. I have to go with the cliche pick. I have to go with the greatest sports movie of all time, which is Raging Bull. Uh, that is my very next pick. <laughs> yes, and it's. I mean, we could talk about it more uh, whenever you. Uh, whenever yeah, you go, yeah, let's just go get through it now. Let's just get through it now. It's. I mean, that's, this is another reason why we picked Mick. Uh, Mick, <laughs> Nick, because he, he's a bit. He's a bit of a dissenter on this movie, which I think is interesting. Um, but the reason why I have to go with, with the flock and say it's probably Scorsese's best movie is yeah. because. It mixes the profane and the holy so well. It, it uh, like just the opening credits of him like jumping around to the classical music, to all the very Catholic penances he must go through. A very Scorsesean theme, yeah. <laughs> as, as I as I referenced in our intro in a terrible segue earlier in the podcast. But it's it's a special movie. It's one of the great performances. It's crazy that this and John Hurt as the Elephant Man were both performances in the same year because that's sort of like having. Joaquin Phoenix, uh, um, Daniel Day-Lewis, and uh, Denny Levant all giving like career best performances. Wow! In the same year. I mean, uh, like we did a couple of years ago with Lincoln. Oh, well, I wouldn't say that's Daniel Day-Lewis's best, but one yeah. of one of his best, uh, The Master and Holy Motors. But like between uh, John Hurt and Elephant Man and Robert De Niro and this, it's insane that those came out in the same year and they were occupying the same space of just genius levels of acting. Yeah. The range De Niro shows in this is incredible. And that final scene, which uh, Paul Thomas oh. Anderson riffs in Boogie Nights, is De Niro poorly giving the Marlon Brando monologue. I mean, not poorly, but not yeah. to the level that Brando did it. A not-as-good version. Again, the profane and the sacred. He's giving one of the great speeches in all of cinema, and he's, he's fudging it. I and could have been so- a contender. Yeah, like it's like it's like just it's a lame line read, and it's beautiful. It's it's just it's yeah, it's a, just um, yeah. Some of the later moments of this film, it's like it was a revelation to me when I saw it. It was a life changing film, and most of that is because I was an actor in high school. I wanted to be an actor, like that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be um, a contender. To a what? You want to be a what? A contender. A contender. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this film, like, it changed the way I looked at performing and, and, and acting and the way acting can be used in film. And, I mean, just the, and the black and white cinematography, you, you could not do those fight scenes oh, yeah. in color. And because in, well, I mean, you could, 
uh, and the direction would still be there. But so, something with the black and white that just makes it so much more brutal. Yeah. And it, I mean, this is a film about a human animal. That which it's, that also has something to do with the master too. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you think it, about it, it's it's almost like a musical. Not in that it has songs, but mostly the dance numbers. Every, <laughs> you fucked my wife. <laughs> you fucked my. <laughs> it uh like in that like the reason why singing in the rain is so great. I mean the songs are are, are obviously good, but it's the dance numbers that truly yeah, make the film. It's the physicality of the film. And, and here and, and and they advance the plot and here the plot is advanced by every fight's completely different every fight serves a purpose Scorsese doesn't waste a fight in this movie and they're all the dance between the camera and the actors and the editing like it's it's insane how well edited this film is is, is this a Thelma Schumacher, a Schumacher film I don't know um if it isn't Raging Bull IMDB all right I have to check because I mean she's one of the I mean she's one of the great editors and she deserves complete credit for how yeah much. yeah yeah Thelma Thelma Schumacher yeah she's I mean this is one of the great the best edited films of all time if you just include those fight scenes and I love it so Nick why yeah. do you dissent you're mean <laughs> oh, oh guys um it's been it's been a while since I've seen the films actually um. And the thing is, this is one of those types of movies where every single time I watch it, I'm like, "What am I? What am I missing?" Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think uh, yeah. We, I, th- I think we all have movies like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I totally think we all get that. Um, I, and the thing is, absolutely nothing to me is coming. Like when when, when I think of Raging Bull, I'm I'm drawing a blank. And I think I watched it like a year ago. Mm-hmm. And it, for some reason, I. Maybe that's it. It just doesn't stay with me. Okay. Like that, 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 it, it, ha- it has, it has no, it, it doesn't have like the power for me of, of maybe like is is other um Scorsese's other movies like Goodfellas and um, uh, Mean Streets um, in like yeah. King of Comedy stuff like that. Um, I mean, I'm always willing to give certain movies a rewatch no matter how. Long. Oh, god damn it. I give certain movies a rewatch, oh. no matter how outside the ballpark I fall. But, I, and, um, Raging Bull is one of them. So, right. I mean, like, I'm, I'm willing to give it, give it another go. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I think that's completely legitimate. Like a movie has to connect to someone in the audience. I wasn't putting you on the spot. <laughs> it's not what I was trying to do. Well, we, we have one of those kinds of movies for me coming up later in. Oh yeah. Another right. list. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, it, it, we all have them. Yeah. Right. So it is your turn, Robbie. What is your number four? Oh yeah, you already told. It me. was the Raging, Raging Bull. Wait, no, I skipped Nick. What the hell? Nick. What the hell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nick, Nick you're I'm number the four. Worst, and, I'm the worst host in yeah. the world. Okay, so Nick, you're number four, and then my number four is Raging Bolt. But Nick, give your number four, and then TJ, you'll give your number number three. Sounds good to me. Alright. Um, I'm gonna go with what is probably the Coen Brothers' most flat-out comedy, it's like most straight comedy, um, Raising Arizona. Um, almost, almost made my list. I personally feel that. It's 
probably probably the funniest Coen Brothers movie. And when 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 the Coens do comedy, they do it spot on. They can they they can make something funny. They can make something funny out of what really should be an absolutely dire situation of, of, yep. of like <laughs> like this 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 very this very, they, they they make something very dark into something very silly and like mm. it, it, even like the the character of um uh who is it um kind of like, almost like the, the the angel of retribution um he's like so overblown um oh, what, what 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 is it it's it, it, is it, uh the the um Leonard Smalls the the character of Leonard Smalls the lone biker of the apocalypse um that 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 character is so overblown even though like it it, it as as just said it's the lone biker of the apocalypse it it it's 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 essentially bringing on the apocalypse um what 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 they done but it it's played with such a with such a straight, almost like fast type feel to it, because everything's so fast, and no, no, none of none of the actors are looking at the camera. None of them are really paying attention to, like that. They're, they're not given the wink. They're not like, "Hey, this is a joke." Um, everything's so straight. Everything like, and that, that's that's what I want for my comedy. I want I want things that are just, I I I, I like, I like fast timing. I like yeah, no. Like no no winking at the camera no 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 saying this is the this is the joke, um, like they're, they're like actors who can play these types of roles straight, but the jokes are around them and they come and, and the jokes come from the characters, not not from the actors doing something silly. But even though they're, and and when when they do do something silly like like that, absolutely brilliantly filmed, abs- like one of my favorite I think one of my favorite scenes of film in all time. One of my all-time favorite scenes in film. Jesus, I can't talk. I'm sorry, guys. Um, the chase scene as he um, in the as high in, in the supermarket as high robs the supermarket and um, Holly Hunter is like she is so calm about everything um, and like he's running through. Um, He's running through people's houses, and then they're like, they're collecting dogs as they go as they go along, um, and and it's yet, like, it's, it's, sorry, yeah, <clears throat> I was gonna say, and, and yet along with all this wackiness, there's a, an emotional core to the film too. The ending, straight oh, yeah. up, the ending can the ending can make me cry on the right day. Oh no, that 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 ending is is very it's absolutely touching. It's 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 a beautiful yeah. ending. Um, that's actually one of the notes I wrote down for this film, and and like, even though it, it like the the character at 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 its core is this like white trash. Um, I'm talking about high the um, Nicholas Cage. Nicholas character. Cage, yeah, yeah. Through the narration it, 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 in this film, it's pitch perfect. By the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, he's so like he's like this white trash kind of like can't keep a job down kind of guy, but. Is, there's also this kind of like eloquence and intelligence that he's he, like he he's obviously on in in some part of his brain is more advanced than the, the other parts and like it it like some of the things that he says is absolutely beautiful especially in those dream sequences that um like like the ending like just this really philosophical really interesting ideas it's 
it's it's great. I love it. Oh yeah, that's I mean, it. I'm done. I mean, what I love so much about the Coen Brothers is their. I mean, everything they do is cinematic. Uh, I'm not saying that they're that they're anything but cinematic, but it's just so literary. Like their dialogue is so like reminiscent of a lot of great short story writers in the 20th century, and like the regionalism. Like like here we're in Arizona, but in another great film they they do it in Fargo. And in another one, they can do it in New York City. And just the way that they play with regions is just so much fun. Yeah. My number three is um, a repeat and one we've been hinting to very uh, thoroughly throughout this podcast. It is Blue Velvet. And pretty much why this film, or it, yeah, why this film is on my list is because uh, the candy colored man they call the Sandman. Um, <laughs> just that scene is all you need in 80s cinema it's 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 perfect it's creepy it's weird it's random it that's it's the somehow, gas that's the gas scene right um it's around one of the gas scenes it's whenever they go to the party and oh, okay. there, there, there's this guy and he takes the lamp and he lip syncs to roy orbison uh like <clears throat> yeah yeah, yeah. I, know, I know what you're talking about yeah and and he's dancing <laughs> And there's a and chick we, dancing on top of the car, isn't there? Um, that's that's right after because in here they're in a room, uh, uh. and and you you feel as awkward as you feel as awkward as Kyle MacLachlan in this scene. Like you you are looking at the weird underbelly of this perfect town in which robins sing on fence posts and the and the and the firemen uh, drive by and wave at everyone, all the firemen volunteers. And, Everyone is a perfectly manicured lawn. But this is also the place where you'll die of a heart attack. This is where the seedy underbelly and the dirt, all the bugs are everywhere. This is where you find a random fucking ear in the field. This is this is Lynch crystallized. I mean, it's my second favorite Lynch film, my favorite being Mulholland Drive, but they're so close. I mean, between this and Mulholland Drive, like, we have both sides of what make him so very interesting. And... Uh, Kyle McLaughlin here is just is just wonderful. Yeah, I'm a big. Oh yeah. Awesome. So Nick, your number three. My number three. Um, it's been a while since I've watched this one as well. I really should have been rewatching a couple of weeks before we did this podcast. That's why you probably gave me times and said, "Hey Nick, watch these movies again." So, mm, nah, <laughs> not gonna do it. I'm lazy. Um. Number three, do the right thing. Oh, wow. Spike oh, yeah. Lee. Absolutely. Um, it's one of those movies where the, the the power of it didn't really hit me until after it was after it finished, and like a, a, a lot of it is very dated. A lot of it is very very. A lot of it, that a lot of a lot of the time, nothing is really happening except just conversations between all of these these hu- this huge cast of characters, and then. But it, it, it's it's like one of the one of those movies where everyone is connected in some certain way, and mm-hmm. as the film goes on, um, they all come to Jesus Christ. What just oh. happened? Um, did, you get, did you get attacked by a dingo? 
Yes. But... <laughs> thank God I don't have a baby. <laughs> Not anymore, anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... As the tension kind of broils and comes to and comes 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 to a point above the surface and everyone snaps and in the end Mookie doesn't do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes part of the problem. Even though all throughout the film he was he was the one trying to keep it together. And yeah. essentially keeping everyone else together. Because they all knew Mookie, he's the, the pizza guy, Mookie, hey. But, and then in the end, it's just like, no, nope, decided not to. And so, I mean, it, right, right, I mean, like, it's, 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 it's essentially, a, it, it, it's obviously about race relations, but it's also just, uh, yeah, I mean, oh. Yeah, of course. I mean, it, what, what I love about Do the Right Thing is it could be in the middle of the winter, and it's. I mean, depending on where you live, it could be sub-zero weather. And yeah. you, wa- you watch Do the Right Thing, and you are sweating. Because it is so hot in that world of the movie, it just radiates off the screen. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, it makes such a, and it, it's not only because they keep saying it's hot, it's not like because every character is glistening with sweat. It's because of all the bright red, that great 80s way of capturing bright red. It's just done so well in this movie. I just love it. Oh, oh, definitely, 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 and I, I, I love that. Even though at 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 this point in time, I think Spike Lee was in like late twenties, he mm-hmm. looks like he's he looks like he's eighteen. Or he hasn't aged. He doesn't even look like he's aged a day. Like you, you see Spike Lee nowadays, he's dressed like a big kid. Yeah, but he's he's, he's got the facial hair though, and oh, the glasses, yeah, which make him look like huge. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but and like he just kind of. Crumpled, a little bit def- deflated, but um, yeah, I mean, I enjoy it. Oh yeah, so yeah, yeah. It, it's in my top twenty, so it's close. Jeez, I need to pat myself up. Fuck. So my next, my next pick is um, Andre Tarkovsky's *The Sacrifice*. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Believe it or not, the only director I doubled on this whole list was Tarkovsky. Do you prefer um, *The Sacrifice* or *Nostalgia*? *The Sacrifice* is. Close with the stock, close with Stalker, and as my favorite experience of Tarkovsky, and um, this this film is basically about <clears throat> nuclear holocaust, um, <laughs> and it, it it's kind of the it's kind of Tarkovsky's Bergman love letter. I mean, I don't think mm-hmm. I still don't think he films anything in like in a Bergman fashion. It's definitely the same kind of Tarkovsky filmmaking, but you know, it's on his. It's on Bergman's Island. It, it uses Bergman's cinematographer. It uses Bergman's lead actor. Um, Who's also a nostalgia. Who's also a nostalgia speaking Italian, of all things. Erlen Justice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, it's the, a lot of the same things I said about nostalgia. It's just... Uh, this one is more... Um, hopeless, would you say? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because nostalgia, because nostalgia did have a certain kind of somberness to it. Um, the sacrifice is uh, crushing and it's just bleak, and I love it. <laughs> what do you think about that last scene, though? Oh boy, 
Um, I mean, I just the love last the way scene... fire. Like, the way that things burn in Tarkovsky movies, that it always is so evocative. Yeah, exactly. And especially in the, in the mirror, too. Yeah. Okay, my number two, I think, is the movie you just referenced, uh, like, about 10, 20 minutes ago. It is the, the inspiration for the entire list. Um, it is Terry Gilliam's Brazil, which I've seen about four times now, probably three times in the last year. Uh, I watched it with the commentary track. I always count that for some reason. But um, mm-hmm. it is <laughs> decidedly not for everyone. It's, but it is most definitely in my wheelhouse of just assaulting my senses and, be, and, is, and being unique to itself. It sort of is the only movie that is what it is. And yep. it is, it's an Orwellian nightmare. I mean, the, the script was titled 1984 and a half because of its Fellini influence and its uh, Orwell influence. <laughs> but but um, I just love everything about the production design. I love the flights of fancy of him trying to fight this oppressively sci-fi world with his own, like, he's a hero with the wings fighting this stack, this golem of a samurai warrior, and he uses that as his escape. He's, all these sort of stories, all this imagination, very childish, because, I mean, uh, Gilliam is very into the imagination of a child. And so I guess this is the exact opposite of what Nick was saying earlier in that, this is a movie about an adult sort of harkening back to their childhood almost to escape the job, to escape all of that. Um, but I don't know. It's just so unique to itself. And I love Jonathan Price uh, in this film as the lead. And all of the cameos from Robert De Niro to Bob Hoskins and uh, uh, who is – who's his boss? It's Bilbo. Oh. Um... Ian Holm? Yeah. Yes, Ian Holm. And, and just like all these like uh, cameos, all these bit parts that all add up to this sort of just this bizarre world, this world where every decade of the 20th century is present, where you have typewriters and you have futuristic, like you have the internet essentially, and you have just all these great kinetic moments of going down the hall, following all these people um, just marching down the hall in a way that's so cartoony. It's almost like a live-action cartoon in a lot of ways. A lot of Looney Tunes, even, possibly. And it, and it feels like one of Gilliam's animated parts from the Monty, his Monty Python days, like all the animated bits of uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail just put into a movie. And it's just, it's just fun. I mean, it's a movie I can't get enough of, and a movie that was vastly improved on seeing it on the big screen because it, it, it just assaults you all the more. Nice. Well, um, okay. Well, Nick, well, anything else, anything else to say? Um, for me, um, no, only that you should see it. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, all right, uh, Nick. All right. Speaking of assault on the senses, <laughs> there's a certain... I said I wouldn't be doing this anymore. Um, <laughs> there's a certain movie. Well, look, some 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 films. You're like, these are films. This is a movie. This is a movie. It's 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 silly. It is not serious. And most, I, 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 I don't know. It, it it doesn't seem like the kind of it doesn't seem like the kind of movie which most film fans with their bespectacled 
and be spectacled. Um, with the with, with, with the lattes and stuff like that, would say is a was a proper film to be put on your list. But I don't care. This comes from the twisted minds of Jerry Zucker, Jim Abrahams, and David Zucker. Airplane. Yeah. My second favorite movie of oh, the nice. decade. Um, I mean, I think I comedy resonates with me very well, which is why um. I'm also very choosy when it comes to comedy. It's one of the first like, com- comedy is one of the first things I really connected with when I was when I was a kid. Uh, um, pe- people always say I'm funny, which I don't believe. And then um, and it's like this move. This 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 film is so filled with jokes and jokes which are just so ridiculously. St- Almost, in a, in a way, obvious, but in another way, dumb. Just like <laughs> dumb, so dumb. But it feels it feels good to laugh at these kind of things. It it, oh, yeah. it because like 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 when 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 um Robert Stack comes in and is and he pulls off his his first pair of sunglasses and there's another pair of sunglasses underneath. Like who <laughs> can like what kind of movie? Has, has has jokes like that, and why weren't they thought of that before? Like, it's it and then there's so many jokes, there's so many physical jokes, there's so many weird jokes, there's so many out there jokes, there's so many references to that certain time period. So, but like, if 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 you miss if you miss like about five jokes throughout the movie, there's another hundred and fifty to to look for. And while yeah. I'm, while I'm on while I'm on this roll, I also want to um. Mention the. I think it's a little underrated. Top Secret, which mm. came after, um, I, th- I think after Airplane, but it's essentially it's the same level of jokes as Airplane. It's like all, <laughs> but the jokes in Airplane in Top Secret are much much weirder. Like there's that absolutely. Brilliant scene of there's there's actually quite there's quite a few brilliant scenes, but like there's there's the there's the um they go into a Swedish bookshop and everything is filmed backwards. <laughs> they, they they like the they, they the the lines are recited backwards, and um there's 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 a scene in Top Secret where the 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 good guy and the bad guy fall off into a river and like they're, they're, they're having a fight and they fall off into a river and they fall down and it's an underwater bar fight. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> wow. And um, a, re- a, a big reason why I'm excited uh, for Inherent Bites is because I hear it as a lot of Top Secret and uh, Zuckerberg. Or, or, is it Zucker? Yeah, Zucker. Zucker yeah. Uh, a Zucker uh, influence to it. So. Really? Yeah. Really? I, I, I didn't know that. Um, but I mean, I just these are comedy movies which really, like, as I said, they're 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 in assault because every single time that if if you blink, you will miss a joke, kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I think this. Yes. Oh, I think the "Don't Call Me Shirley" joke has to be a top ten joke in movie history. <laughs> It's a little, um, it's a little overplayed for me. It is a little overplayed. Yeah, I, 
But it's the one that, other than the uh, the the disco scene, the the reference to uh, what movie? Saturday Night Fever. Yep. Uh, other than the Saturday Night Fever gag, which has been killed by um, Seth MacFarlane. Ted. Yeah, yeah I mean, because it, Ted references the reference to Saturday. Like he references the reference in another movie, which is a reference to another movie. Like, yeah. and and the thing is, he doesn't even do anything original with that joke. He just plays the exact same scene, but with Mila Kunis and um, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, the, I mean, he doesn't yeah, do anything was... different. He doesn't do anything different. At least when Paul Thomas Anderson does Boogie Nights, we get to see Mark Wahlberg's fake penis. So. At least that's the saving grace. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, should we move on? Yeah. My next one's a super safe pick. Um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Ooh. Greatest action adventure film of all time? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it's... The, I, I just rewatched it, and that and, and the fact that you bring it up uh, makes me think of the Soderbergh thing where he turned it black and white and took out all the dialogue. So just oh, so yeah. you can see how well-framed and edited that movie is. So you can pay attention. To, I mean, it's, it's just... <coughs> everything about the action sequences are fun. Like, totally, it's just crazy. I yeah. mean, the, the car chase, the 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 snake pit, the the or was that the well of souls? Is that what that is? I think. I don't it's know. Just, it, it's it. I mean, what makes Raiders better than the other ones? That's my um, question. I don't know. I mean, um, the Temple of Doom is really goofy, but I like it for its goofiness. Absolutely. Um. Um. Last Crusade, which I love otherwise. Um, the thing that gets revealed is kind of silly. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't think Raiders... I think Raiders is the one that never really gets as silly as some of the, as the other ones. And it's not Crystal Skull bad. But, you know. I don't know. And then... Yeah, you know, it's, it's just like, this is the first one. So this is like the original, you know. Yeah. I mean... What I like about Raiders is that, I mean, Indiana Jones could not have done anything and the plot would have happened exactly the same and that, like, the ending doesn't matter because it's like a baby six machina. But you don't care because the movie's so good that it makes you pay attention to the, like, to the adventure itself. I haven't thought about that, actually. Hmm. It, it doesn't hurt the movie at all, though. I mean, like, yeah. it, it still maintains all of its power even though Indy, in the end, doesn't save the day. Right. So are we, are we at number one? I think we are. God, hot damn. Well, my pick is has been my favorite 80s movie since I first saw it. It kind of blew my mind, and I watched the short version. I have since seen the miniseries version that appeared on Swedish TV, and it's even better, more fleshed out, and more of a masterpiece. It is Ingmar Bergman's best film. It is his last hurrah. It is Fanny and Alexander which earned four Academy Awards, surprisingly, and won and several nominations for Bergman himself. Stan Alexander is a weird one. It's more romantic than his previous movies, not in a love story way, but just in a almost a nostalgia uh, tint to it. It's about mm. childhood. It's about the love of cinema. It has a very Dickensian plot, but it also has a very Hamlet-influenced plot, which is specifically referenced in the film, Early when when Finn and Alexander's father dies during uh, dress rehearsals for Hamlet, and he himself becomes Hamlet's father to to Alexander, and sort of haunts Alexander. And Alexander has to deal 
with his stepfather now, who is a Lutheran, puritanical Lutheran. Just the use of set design where when like the, the first episode takes place at Christmas and they're all just dancing around the tree and party and there's practic there's no plot it's just a party and you can meet all of these characters so colorful so full of red a lot like Cries and Whispers but in more of a warm inviting way as opposed to a um, a soul sucking way and <laughs> and then yeah. but 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 then once we go to the stepfather's house it's all drained of color everything is just white and gray. And Erlen Josephson's uh, performance as the Jewish um, family friend is so interesting because that in- involves all of this m- magical realism that's just injected into the film. This is just, this is an adventure. This is the kind of movie, if I saw it as a kid, it would have been my favorite movie then. And it's one of my top four favorite movies as an adult of any genre. And it's, it's Bergman's Fanny Alexander. I just love it. Sweet. I still haven't seen it. I have to cut through a lot of Bergman still. I reckon, I mean, it, there's nothing wrong with watching the three-hour version first. Uh, I'd um, probably just go with the miniseries mini because I don't want to yeah, watch it again, you know. Well, that way you could break it up into just six, like episodes and just like stop watching like after an episode. Like four 50-minute episodes. Which is yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, how, that's how I'd probably do it. Nick, it's your, it's your number one, and I have no idea who directed this movie. Nah, I, n- neither do I. Um, I actually just realized, I was looking at my list, and I was kind of like, where is, what, what, where's where, where that, where's that, where, that movie? Um, so I, I just want to give a quick shout out, because I completely forgot to put it on, King of Comedy. Oh, yeah, yeah, which is great. I've, I, I've, I forgot to put it on there, um, as we said, Robert De Niro. Great. Um, also, love love its kind of social satire of, uh, like the the effect of fame on on certain people, and mm-hmm. how we the public perceives um, famous people, and okay. idolizes them. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, my personal number one. Brrr, actually, no. Um, no. Stop. Stop it. Zelig. Um, and I I arrived there. At a process of elimination, if I, I, I it, it's probably not the kind of movie which I would put there as a like I'd, I'd probably I'd, if 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 I was, if I was making like an like a list to somebody else or or if or if I wasn't being true to myself, I'd probably put something else there. Like I'd, I like I'd probably put like Raising Arizona or Do the Right Thing there or or even King of Comedy um, because of like those are proper movies um, because Woody Allen has his Annie Hall in Manhattan and he has his Crimes and, mis- crimes and Misdemeanors and um, and he has his Stardust Memories and um, Purple Rose of Cairo and it's like why don't you put that one there why, why, why Zelig and Zelig is to me it's, a perf- it's one of the perfect encapsulations of the two sides of Woody Allen and all four of his top like five star ten out of ten movies for me are perfect encapsulations of the two sides of Woody Allen, um, the melodramatic, the romantic, uh, the, the philosophical, and the brilliantly com- comedic. Zelig yeah. is flat out funny, and after oh, yeah. um, after uh, like, and probably his 
funniest movie since his funny period. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's got like it's 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 not just it's not kind of like Woody saying like funny things or like or like or like stuff like that. It's actually got set up jokes. Oh yeah. Um, the, the the way that um it's unabashedly romantic as well. I love I love that. Um, and one of the reasons that I I, I love Woody Allen and the fact that his films just always seem to touch me is because they have a kind of a a sarcastic look on life, but they're never down. They're never downplaying life. They're they're they're, they're not like utterly bleak and hopeless, except mm-hmm. for um, husbands and wives, which is like if 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 all husbands and wives and and but and interiors as well. Interiors just is is oh, yeah. both of those films are very life sucks and get used to it kind of thing. Um, but I put like, another woman in that level too. I haven't seen another one yet. Um, it's it's in my it's in my box set. It's in <laughs> it's in this box set that I have here. I hear it. Actually, I don't want to shake him. I want to <laughs> shake it. It's okay. Don't cry. Um, but um, like and 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 Zelig, even though it's got this story about a man who um, changes himself. To, to to suit certain situations, and only because he he himself does not does not really isn't happy with who he is as a person. I l- absolutely love and I mean like I've, I've I've never actually felt like crying before, but it's like what cures him is love. Mm-hmm. And it's like that. It's I mean. For, for for Woody to 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 get off up off off of his high philosophical perch, his his high philosophical eighties idealism, and to bring, come down to this level is just like what pulled him through his what pull what pulled Leonard Zelig through his anxieties and through his unwillingness to be himself around other people and literally change how he is is finding someone to love and accept him for who he is mm-hmm. and i mean uh, i just absolutely find that to be absolutely beautiful and and the, what what i what i love is uh, after watching a woody allen movie is like i feel like, hey, the world's not that bad, and Zelig does that for me. And oh, see, like that's the opposite of what I want. What I want to look for in movies, I want to see, I want to see movies that make me feel like the world is actually worse than I think it is. <laughs> well, the, yeah, well, we, we, there's there's different things for different people. I'm sure you can <laughs> find many, many, many things like that for for you, um, Mister Mister Person. <laughs> I was so close yeah. to adding Hannah and her sisters and, and or Crimes and Misdemeanors to my list. And really, Zelig, uh, Stardust Memories, Purple Rose of Cairo. I mean, these are all just so... I mean, his 80, I totally agree with you that his 80s period is just his best because what what are the more quote-unquote like standard dramas like Hannah and her sisters and Crimes and Misdemeanors, which are both at times hilarious, 
um, like crimes and misdemeanors, whenever he, he plays his edit of the documentary to Alan Alda just makes me crack up every time. Um, yeah. but, but, but I agree with you. I, I, I the, the romantic aspect of Zelig and Purple Rose of Cairo really are very much, are very life affirming and really, really fun plays with, with, with cinema, with movies. Cause Zelig, like the way that it plays with the documentary. Oh from, yeah. Oh, that, that, that that's absolutely amazing how he does that yeah oh yeah i mean to me it's a better version of a movie uh that better version of forrest gump in some ways in the way that they kind of edit him into these like scenes and it's just it still looks good and i, I watched the i watched a, i watched the dvd of it and it was still looking good when i saw it it was i don't know zelig is an incredibly enjoyable movie <laughs> yeah definitely. and 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 in um the the woody allen canon i think incredibly underrated as well i would I, you know I, I mean after hearing you describe it i i have to agree i'm i probably underrated yeah it's i i i think absolutely just heartwarming and i mean like a lot of Woody Allen's films can't can't really be described as heartwarming, but I I I think in in, in a way it might be the most pure in its message. How um and like how it's just like it it it's got such a simple message of just be yourself. <laughs> is it his best movie overall, or is that Annie Hall? No, oh no no any 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 Hall. Um, I I I'd, I'd probably say it's his fourth best. I love myself. <laughs> you got Annie Hall, um, Love and Death, Manhattan, uh-huh. Zelig. I need to watch Love and Death or what? Really, no one laughed at my Kendrick Lamar reference. Wait, no, we don't. I mean, it's a song I love myself, but 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 what was the, what was the inspiration? Because 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 he said Nick said the moral of Zelig is to be yourself. Okay. All right. That that clearly worked. <laughs> well, I'm on. My number one pick is very anticlimactic. I didn't really have because it's alphabetical order. If if uh, I had to order it, my number one would be Raging Bull. But because it's alphabetical, the one that was at ten or one, however you think, is uh, The Shining, Ooh. which um is not my Top top favorite uh, Kubrick, but I'd say it's top tier Kubrick. Um, seeing it on the big screen last Halloween that really reinforced my opinion on it. Um, it re- probably helped me. Yeah, probably. Uh, just the imagery in this movie—it's uh, mm-hmm. un- unreal. Um, yeah, love it. I think The Shining is another movie I underrate. It's such a great movie. It. But well, a lot, well a lot of people overrate it. So well, maybe that's, that's maybe that's my resistance to it because, like, to me, I've always put it as lower tier Kubrick, and, and that's just my—I don't have a, a good reason. <laughs> it's just it didn't hit me as strong as like I mean, but I, I'm the same guy who thinks Barry Lyndon's his best movie, so who can trust that? Um, but I just think I, I just actually bought—I I had some some rewards points on Amazon, so I just ordered the Blu-ray. I'm going to watch it around Halloween. And hopefully this is the time where I, I love it. It's a, it's a great movie. It's loveless worthy. But for some reason, I, I want it to, to attract you. Maybe it is a bit overrated or maybe I'm underrated. And I don't know. But it's certainly uh, memorable. Well, I think there's a reason it's a part of the cultural conversation every as one of the best horror movies because it's 
it's incredibly memorable. Yeah, definitely. And I also and I also think I try to compare it to the book, which is my favorite horror book that I've ever read. Oh well, yeah. Um, it's accomplishing something. Yeah. Different. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'm beat. So, uh, uh, real quick, I did want to say that um, I have like three honorable mentions. I, I could do infinite, but I'm just going to do three uh, because you guys named a lot of my really close picks. Blood Simple, um, yeah, one yeah, of yeah. the great one of the great debuts of cinema history, and I, and and I'll stand for the Coen Brothers. I love their their movies. Shoah, because I obviously love to be in pain. Um, and the other one, oh, Gremlins, which was my favorite movie of the year. <laughs> and, and I can still enjoy the hell out of it for the way it sort of uh, satirizes Christmas. Right. Suburban life. Right. I don't have any honorable mentions and I gotta go, so. Okay. Nick, do you have, do you have any quick ones? How long was the cut of show that you watched? Uh, I watched it in seven sittings, but, it, but it's the nine hour. It's, 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 it's the full thing. Wow. But, but I watched nice. it in several sittings. And That's commitment. It is, but it's a great documentary. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm fixing to watch it pretty soon. Alright, so, yeah. I'm out. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoy. I hope you all enjoy. Wait, did you have... A- Wait, did you have honorable, honorable mentions? Me? No. Oh, I thought I thought you said wait. No. Oh, I'm done. Oh. <laughs> All, right. All right. I really got. I gotta go. So bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. No information left of any kind.